One of the most fundamental characteristics of a company is its brand, its very corporate identity. And companies work really hard to protect their brand. And it seems that the church is very similar. But when Christians respond to critiques with such tactics of brand protection, they block the possibility of repentance and they risk speaking against correction brought by the Holy Spirit. Hi, this is Brandon, and welcome to the Crucible of Thought podcast. And I'm here to share things that interest me and things that I think the Lord has brought to my attention. And today's episode is titled, Protect the Brand. The larger a company, the more important its identity and the larger the team of lawyers and public relations and social media technicians assigned to protecting that brand from all kinds of malfeasance. And these folks monitor the brand's appearance in the news and on social media. And when adverse trends appear, a cadre of company PR experts leap into action, issuing positive press releases, denying responsibility, talking about the good things they do, and so forth. A cadre of lawyers also get to work looking for actionable, libel, and any justification to require persons or competitors to withdraw adverse claims, usually by threatening lawsuits, even if they're fairly groundless. And the smaller the opponent, the more pressure is brought to bear. Meanwhile, the social media managers, often with the advice from the lawyers and public relations experts, carefully craft opposing viewpoints, avoiding new pitfalls and legal landmines, and attempting to sway the public conversation to more positive conclusions. In many cases, for larger companies, a stealth campaign also begins to craft a counterpoint message that undercuts the negative information that's just appeared. And this information may be disseminated from sock puppet accounts created just for this purpose. And in other cases, friendly accounts are paid to share the revised story. If this all sounds underhanded and callous, it probably should. The first line of defense in many cases is usually denial of the narrative. Failing this, it's usually some form of attacking the messenger. Rarely does the process involve directly and clearly taking responsibility for the information or the event. This would be legally dangerous to the company and it would expose it to even a greater risk of penalties or sanctions. The United States legal system fundamentally treats corporations as individuals rather than a collection of people banded together for some corporate purpose. From this perspective, I think it would be safe to say that corporations rarely follow the golden rule or any other biblical commandments for how to treat each other. It looks an awful lot like bullying and king of the hill rather than sacrificial love for others. With nary a hint of repentance, as any admission of guilt is universally caged in lawyerly self-protection and self-preservation language. Now, this is hardly surprising given that a corporation must fight for its survival in a dog-eat-dog, survival-of-the-fittest business environment where nobody plays nice and where consumers are fickle. Why would they buck the trend and risk their own share price or very survival? Well, it might surprise many people that many churches are in fact corporations in the sense that they're legally incorporated entities with boards and bylaws. Most are nonprofit 5013C for the purpose of deductible contributions by their membership. But very few of those churches will mount such massive legal and social media and public relations offenses, 
at least with the exception of the larger megachurches with very powerful branding. Still, it's worth discussing this concept of brand management in the context of how we think about Christianity. I would posit that many Christians probably think about our faith as a brand that must be managed and protected in one form or another. And this brand protection, I believe, operates at three different levels. So the first level is Christianity as a whole. The Orthodox Christian faith competes, of course, with Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, Hinduism, agnostics, atheists, and a whole raft of sects and cults like Christian science, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Scientology, and more. At the core, it's drilled into Christians that only they know the truth and the truth giver, and it's essential to bring others into the Christian community to be saved. So in a sense, very similar to the worldly battles for corporate dominance and survival, the same principles of brand protection appear. Don't let the Christian brand or our God or his name be tarnished. The second level is denominational. Even within Christianity, each denomination perceives itself as being the repository for certain very essential teachings that are disputed by other denominations. In much the same way as fighting for market share with other high-level religions, each denomination teaches that it has things that need to be spread within the kingdom of God so that more may come to a, quote, true knowledge of God, one which is more accurate than in other denominations. The third level is doctrinal. Within any denomination, within a given church congregational, the belief structures that exist are held very deeply by both the church leadership and, by training, the members of the congregation. These beliefs must be guarded, protected, or preserved against apostasy and error, so that if someone goes down a mental or spiritual pathway that conflicts with the teachings within that congregation, the other members can be protected from falling into similar error. So I think that at all three levels, there's a fundamental element of competition at play, protecting Christianity or the denominational understanding, and winning new customers to that particular instantiation, or protecting the congregation from outside error. And these competitions end up looking remarkably similar to the brand protection battles and tactics at the corporate level. Usually it doesn't involve lawyers, but the public relations battle is just as real and constant. More to the point, since individual Christians view themselves as members of the group and they're taught to protect the brand with vigor and strength for the sake of the gospel, it's a more widely spread fight than in corporate America, where at least the average worker for a large company just does their job and lets the lawyers and PR department handle the brand protection. As a result, the average Christian feels compelled to jump into the fray, particularly in interpersonal relationships and especially on social media, to defend the brand of Christianity and denominational and even congregational identity. It's a culture that is extremely unfriendly to individual pursuit of truth and of Jesus. In the corporate world, if someone begins asking hard questions about the culture or the practice or even the figureheads, a whistleblower problem usually rapidly develops. When someone begins revealing a company's dirty laundry, usually for the sake of bringing positive change to the company that they love and they want to see healthy, the result is usually an immediate circle-the-wagons response, followed by a hunt for the source of the information. And if the leak is found, usually the individual is summarily fired unless they successfully sue for whistleblower protection under U.S. law. 
it should be fairly obvious that the exact same trend occurs in Christian circles. When someone begins revealing unpleasant facts about practices or doctrines, the church rapidly begins to circle its wagons, and often enough the person asking the hard questions is shunned or disciplined or brought up for public correction, or fired if they're employed by the church. In the last couple years, with the upheaval caused by the discussions over racism and the church and the culture and the way that various churches have handled COVID, a huge number of pastors were effectively fired by their congregations, either directly or they were made so ineffective that they willingly resigned and walked away from the pastoral role in that local body. And countless more lay leaders and congregants simply walked away in the face of determined and very vocal opposition. Interestingly, one particular feature of corporate brand protection is that the truth is really somewhat irrelevant to the response that's mounted. The lawyers are looking mainly for actionable missteps by some opponent, and the public relations team is looking for weakness in the social arguments that's being made, trying to find countering viewpoints. And I'd submit that the Christian response to religious brand protection is fundamentally the same. Truth seems to become secondary to protecting the brand from harm. Depending on the context, we tend to respond by defending Christianity itself or our denomination or our local congregational teaching before we stop to carefully evaluate whether the information that's presented is true and actionable. At the major religion level, I have a very hard time with protecting the brand of religion that we call Christianity. We claim to believe that the Lord God Almighty is omnipotent. We celebrate stories of his dramatic victories over insurmountable odds. Yet we simultaneously believe that our efforts are essential to winning those victories, as if somehow this all-powerful deity we worship cannot maintain his interests without our getting involved in the fighting. As an example, when I think about the Crusades and consider those excesses and outright attempts at genocide against entire people groups in the name of Christ, it's downright sickening. Whatever happened to be still and know that I am God? From Psalm 46, the psalmist writes, Come, behold the works of the Lord, who has inflicted horrific events on the earth. He makes wars to cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. He burns chariots with fire. Stop striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted on the earth. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. So it doesn't appear from this and many other similar verses that God really needs us to impose his will on the earth for his own glory. At the denominational level, the infighting and the attempts to steal membership from other churches betrays our lack of faith in our Bible's teachings about God's call for oneness, or more importantly, the Bible's teachings such as Revelation 7 about every nation and people and tongue, that the church, the body of Christ, will be richly varied. We are so convinced that only our particular insight into God's nature is capable of bringing about God's victory on earth that we feel compelled to fight each other for market share. At the congregational level, I can somewhat understand defending our congregational teaching. Hopefully it's inspired by the Holy Spirit in the pastor and the teachers over that local body. But the attack against serious questions, honest questions, betrays two things. One, we're afraid that a careful and patient discussion of the question will not result in the person's growth and return to unity. And two, we're afraid that 
people will be swayed by these supposed false doctrines and turn away from the true faith. Well, if so, just how solid is that faith to begin with? Each believer should be mature enough to answer those questions just as confidently and richly as the pastor or the teacher who's teaching them. Furthermore, all of these attack responses at those three different levels to protect the brand assume perfect correctness in the brand. It leaves exactly zero room for the possibility that something might be amiss. The vast majority of the challenges to Christian practice and doctrine, especially today, come from those who are observing something just not right about the situation, often based on their own actual maturity in their Bible study, revealing an apparent disconnect. If there were true orthopraxy, right practice, and orthodoxy, right doctrine, at play, then it would be eminently clear to all mature onlookers that the questioner was misguided or misinformed, and a fairly simple, if extended, conversation would restore that one to common union, or communion, within their body. But if there's heteropraxy, a different from right practice, or heterodoxy, a different from right doctrine, at play, then it's right for the questions to be asked, and it does the church well to carefully consider whether that question does come from a point of validity. As Christians, we're called to repentance as a way of life. Verse after verse in the Bible calls us to turn from our wicked ways and to seek his face as the only source of truth. Perhaps we smash down our consciences when we're challenged by believing that wicked, quote-unquote, is something that the non-Christians are guilty of, or maybe that those folks in another denomination are missing, or that the one among us who's asking the hard questions is guilty of wickedness. But what if wickedness is much more subtle than that? The word sin is simply missing the mark. It doesn't have to be dramatic or 180 degrees out from the ideal. It can be just a degree or two away from God's truth. And repentance, similarly, isn't only turning away from graven idols or murder. It's simply turning from missing the mark, even very subtly. As ones who are called to a life of constant repentance, how is that possible? Unless we begin from a position of constantly asking God, as in Psalm 139:24, see if there is any offensive way in me. The word translated offensive here, atzeb in Hebrew, means hurtful or idolatrous or painful or sorrowful. It's giving God a constant chance to adjust our perspective, often on a daily or even a moment-by-moment basis. And what better way to facilitate that process than recognizing when God puts someone in our circle with information we didn't have? God will rarely supernaturally reveal our wicked or or even odd-seb, hurtful, painful, sorrowful ways. Rather, he seems to usually choose other humans to recognize and present that information to us. Too often we're blind to our own faults and we need those others who see them to help us mature. And as long as we respond to the correction from others, we won't give God any need to step in and do so directly himself. But when we respond with brand protection, we absolutely and we harshly cut off any possibility of repentance taking place in that circumstance. For one thing, we put up barriers in our own hearts against hearing anything unexpected. By assuming that our righteousness is complete, we have no internal margin to hear otherwise. For another thing, we cut off relationship with the one bringing that information. 
we not only block them in that instance, we ensure that they'll avoid doing so in the future, and we strongly discourage others from doing the same. Effectively, we create a culture that self-reinforces whatever error might exist and denies the prophetic influence of the Holy Spirit to bring correction to his people through his people. If we're dealing with reasonably mature Christians, well-grounded in the Bible and in orthodoxy, what must we conclude when they come to us with a hard question about practices or doctrine? I think it's reasonable to assume that the Holy Spirit is speaking to their spirits about something. At a very real level, this corporate brand protective response to someone bringing a word to the church and pointing out its error denies that the Holy Spirit was involved, and I think it's quite arguable that it accuses the Holy Spirit of being wrong, even if we don't think that's what we're doing. In Matthew 12:31-32, Jesus says, Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or the age to come. It's a hard word. The word translated blasphemy here means switching right for wrong, or in the language of Romans one twenty-five, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. I used to believe that this verse about blasphemy involved calling the Holy Spirit a liar in some public situation. But I now believe that what I see happening routinely in church circles is exactly what is referred to by Jesus in Matthew 12. Quite simply, it's rejecting the voice of the Holy Spirit expressed in the heart and words of a believer and calling it a lie. Note that the verse above says, speaks against the Holy Spirit. This is a fairly low bar for blasphemy. It's not some shocking public event. It seems to me, therefore, that the church is given a very clear calling to carefully investigate charges made against it, and to be very careful in dismissing honest and thoughtful questions about whether something is orthopraxy or orthodoxy. So I cannot end this discussion without addressing that latest bad word in Christian society, deconstruction. Ask most people who consider themselves to be in the middle of deconstruction, and you'll find that very often they're mature Christians who have begun to recognize ways in which their church or denomination or even all of Christian common practice seems heterodox or heteroprax. They sense that something is hypocritical or seriously out of line with the teachings in Scripture, and they're interested in repenting of that falsehood that the Lord brought to their attention. And furthermore, in seeing their local church or denomination or even the entire body of Christ also repenting. But universally, their stories seem to go on to say, But my church rejected me. They shunned me. They refused to answer my questions. It's, it's a brand protection problem writ large across much of the church, where individuals and congregations engage in social maneuvering and self-defensiveness but they say it's for the honor of God and his people and his kingdom. I don't think our God needs that. Rather, I think he's calling us universally to repent and turn from our wicked ways, whatever they are, and no matter how small. The Lord testified that he's committed to bringing about a pure and spotless bride. In Ephesians 5, 25-27, Paul writes about what appears to be a fundamentally central theme of all Christianity. He says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, 
so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. While every generation believes that the end is coming soon, the pace of upheaval seems to be rising suddenly in these years. It should be obvious that the rising chorus of deconstruction is not a passing fad, and it should bear careful considering. Why now, and why so much? Hebrews 12, 25-29 says this, See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns us from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let's show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Well, that should be an incredibly sobering warning. The only possibility we have, as his people, of reaching that pure and spotless state, worthy of consummating that relationship with Christ, is listening incredibly carefully to those small, quiet, individual voices asking, but is this right? The easy answer would be, and usually is, to assume that this is the kingdom of darkness pushing back against the light, and to carry on assuming the glory and rightness of our cause. But what if that is exactly, totally, completely the problem? Not all prophets stand on Mount Carmel, call down fire from heaven to burn up the altar and slay the 450 priests of Baal. Some of them speak softly, oh so softly. So a better answer would be to say, Lord, show me if there's any offensive way in me, and then engage the questions fully, honestly, and humbly. And for the love of God, and seriously, for the love of God and his church, stop labeling deconstruction as apostate and damnable. You risk Jesus' warning in Matthew 12. All right, so thanks for coming along with me on this ride, and we'll talk again soon.